1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacredtext.
0: Chapter 26. Gringotts. Their plans were made, their preparations complete. In the smallest bedroom, a single long coarse black hair plucked from the sweater Hermione had been wearing at Malfoy Manor lay curled in a small glass vial on the mantelpiece. I'm Ter Terkyle.
1: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
1: We want to start with thanking our patrons today, but we also want to make sure that we thank all of our patrons. This is the last group of patrons that signed up for this perk in March. And all of you who did were just so, so grateful. You really helped us get through the beginning of COVID. So just thank you so, so much. This is the last group of patrons. Thank you to the five of you that I'm about to say, but also just thank you to everyone who we've been thanking over the last several months. But Caitlin Carling, Sanjay Kumar, Carrie Worthington, Julian Adler, and Matt, thank you so, so much.
0: And a big shout out as well to the Lindale Nerd Squad Collective a.k.a. the Slug Club from Minneapolis, Minnesota, run by Claire. I love that you have like a funny name, but also an a.k.a. name. So <laughs> huge congrats to you. And if you want to join a fabulous group of nerdy Harry Potter and the Sacred Text fans and readers, come join a local group near you. Find out more at harrypottersacredtext.com.
1: And our final announcement this week is that Casper and I are starting a new podcast, and we're so excited excited about it. We do need your support in order to make it happen. We are going to be treating all sorts of texts as sacred and tackling some of the biggest questions of what it means to try to be a good human in the world. And so to learn more about it, go to patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash pod.
0: Does that mean we get to spend another five years like talking to each other about things that we love and sacred practices?
1: Actually, we're never going to run out. So it could last for 50 years.
0: Dreams can come true. (laughs) So, Vanessa, I chose the theme of time. And so you said, okay, then you have to tell a story about it. (laughs) So, I want to tell you about maybe the nicest, most thoughtful gift that I have ever received. A few years ago for my birthday, Sean gave me this kind of slightly long, box, maybe the size of my forearm. And I was like, oh, is it needlework? Oh, is it fireworks? Like, who knows what's inside? Turns out it was a set of very thin candles with this brass tube about the size of my knuckle that you could open. And then the little top of it becomes a little candle holder that those small candles go in. It was so cute and lovely. But then he said, Casper, I thought of you when I saw this because I want you to have a mobile tech Sabbath set. And I was so touched because for the last six years, every Friday night, as our listeners probably know by now, I turn off my phone and my laptop and I light a candle and I sing a little song. And I welcome in 24 hours of not using email and text and my usual technology because it gives me this like break from the work week. And more than that, it just helps me really feel like fully alive and finding a deep sense of rest and connection to the things that are really important to me. But when I travel, all of that falls away and I end up just watching drag queens on YouTube until like 2 a.m. and then hating myself in the morning for staying up so late. And so it is just such a wonderful gift because it's helped me keep my rhythm of time in a way that helps me feel at home in the world, even when pre-COVID I was traveling.
1: There's so much wisdom in what you do with Tech Sabbath, right? It creates this thing to look forward to in this definition of Sabbath or Shabbat, which is a time out of time. Mm. That's something that we talk about a lot at the beginning of our pilgrimages. So as I'm sure many of you know, we, during non-COVID times, run in-person pilgrimages, and we've been running these virtual ones lately. And the way that we talk about them is as times out of time, They are a time in which you are allowed to be entirely selfish or entirely reliant on the hospitality of others, where you're inviting your brain to operate in a different way. And I love, Casper, that you have created a space for you to do that every week and that Sean noticed that there was sort of um, like a hole in the sieve (laughs) on where that technology was failing for you and found a really simple and beautiful solution.
0: Yeah, I love that you say I, that it's something to look forward to, because I literally start looking forward to it on like Tuesday morning. I'm like, how many days left until Friday night? Because it it's not just like, oh, something's a little different. It's like the whole reality at this point feels different. And listen, I'm very lucky. Like, I don't have kids, so I don't have caring responsibilities. I don't have to look after older parents or work on a Saturday. So I I have the luxury of doing that. But I think if we can find some way to build in a little moment of Sabbath time in our week, whenever it is, I'm such a big fan of that. It might just be the bubble bath or the walk with the dog in the morning before other people are awake, but it really is something to look forward to.
1: You know, another time out of time. Is our 30 second recap.
0: I was going to say, you know, something else I look forward to every week is our 30 second recap.
1: I can't believe you didn't lean into the time angle.
0: (laughs) All right, 30 seconds of time on the clock, and you're going first. Three, two, one, start.
1: So they head out to Gringotts and Griphook is on Harry's back and Hermione is Bellatrix and Ron is changed. And they it is like not a subtle entrance into Diagon Alley. And then they go into Gringotts and the, like the alarms are sort of raised. But they're it's going kind of well, like they're in the, the you know, part where all the things are and they get into Bellatrix's thing. Um, But everything duplicates and gets really hot and then they have to escape and they get on a dragon and they go up and they escape from Gringotts.
0: Yes, I felt like I was on the dragon with you.
1: That was obviously a flawless 30 second recap of a very simple chapter, but do what you can. On your mark, get set, go.
0: Okay, so the plans are made. Grip hook. Harry vibes are still a little off. They arrive in um, not Knockturn Alley but Diagon Alley, and um, Tom is there. And first Hermione, as Bellatrix, is like, oh, good morning, and then Ron's like, you have to be an evil hag, and so she's like, okay, um, and then they walk through, and then there's Travers, and someone like runs at Hermione, is like, you killed my children, and Hermione's like, what, and then Harry's like, stun, 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 and they walk up the up the thing to the bank, and then they go in the bank, and there's clangers because the dragon knows it's gonna be hurt it's actually very cruel
1: oh my god it's horrible harry uses an unforgivable curse for the first time
0: let's start there actually because he's really stepped into his power using an unforgivable curse and so like he's crossed a threshold this is the first time that he's using one of these curses and it works like there's i feel like something in him has changed because of this first time using one of these curses.
1: And, you know, I think that there are some firsts like that that just change you and you're like, okay, I'm apparently now a person who does this.
0: He gets this warm tingle in his arm. Like, I don't want to say it's pleasurable, but there is something that feels not out of place (laughs) in terms of Harry's experience, right? Like there's something that fits a little too comfortably.
1: Well, I will say that he's using Imperio at least the second time. He's not using it maliciously. Mm -hmm. So he has simultaneously crossed this threshold and made it clear that this threshold is a little bit arbitrary, that Mm. this is an unforgivable curse. This is a curse that is illegal under all circumstances. It's like a class A drug of curses. But within that curse, he's actually using it as benevolently as possible and so I think that that's an interesting thing right we like get into our heads the first time I have a sip of alcohol the first time I tell a lie like that we like become this different person whereas I think often that's true there are firsts that we must count and that matter but not all of these things are done equally
0: There's something in here that's really exciting to me because one of the big themes I wanted to talk about in this conversation is the different ways we conceive time. Usually in our kind of Western culture, we think of time as linear, like you're moving from one year to the next, the numbers keep going up 2020, 2021, blah, 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 blah. And if you do something for the first time in a linear conception of time, there's only ever going to be before you did that thing and after you did that thing. And it's like this complete break, right? And if we read this moment where he's using an unforgivable curse, we could say that it's unforgivable. This moment is the one in which Harry becomes unredeemable. But If we think of time as a circle in which we keep coming back through the same series of festivals, if you think about a liturgical calendar, right, like there's going to be Christmas and Easter and and Michaelmas every year, there's going to be Hanukkah, there's going to be the high holidays, there's going to be Passover every year. If we think of it in that way, there's something forgiving about that pattern of time, because there's going to be a new year coming, which allows us to walk this path again, And one of the most interesting things I think about how we can read time is how it shapes our sense of the world and ourselves. And so I love that sense of circular time because I think it keeps giving us not just a second chance, it gives us a new chance every year, right? We get to to turn again towards the way that we want the world to be and the person that we want to be in the world. And so I can imagine Harry saying, you know, maybe in some moment of reflection or confession, like, You know, I did a thing that I'm really not proud of. I still stand by it. I think I used it as responsibly as I could and I did it for good reasons, but I know it's unforgivable. And so, so in this, you know, season, I want to begin again.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, we see that Harry is constantly remembering the previous times he was at Diagon Alley. When he like arrives at Gringotts, he like walks up the hill to Gringotts and he's like, remembers the first time he did that. He remembers being there with Hagrid And what I love is that Harry doesn't even have to wait a year. The next time he comes to Diagon Alley, if it's like post Voldemort, he can cross the threshold of the Leaky Cauldron and be like, this is now a place that I would like to renew my relationship and have it be a place of wonder again. You know, I think a lot of people are doing this right now with COVID. A lot of things that we sort of took for granted and should be able to take for granted, right? Like meeting up with friends, going to restaurants. I think that we're all going to go back to that with a new reverence and excitement. And, And I hope that one of the good things that comes out of COVID is just a feeling of gratitude and celebration for a really long period of time of like every time we get to hold a friend is a new opportunity to tell them how much we love them, right? We don't have to wait for calendars on the outside Mm. and we can create rituals in our own life. My younger stepdaughter and I now have dance parties every Sunday night right before she leaves. And it's like (laughs) our 10 minutes of like dancing the two of us. And that is us like trying to be joyful, even though we're sad that we're about to be part for a little while. These things can even creep up on us. It's not like the eight year old and I sat down and we're like, how can we be joyful before we (laughs) get sad? (laughs) It was like something we did a couple of times, sort of spaced apart many months. And then we were like, oh, this super works for us. And she just sort of pokes her head down at like six o'clock every Sunday night. And now, right? Like, and now it's a thing.
0: I love that. Oh.
1: You know, I hope that Harry, you know, like maybe Florian Fortescue's reopens and Harry is like, every time I come to Diagon Alley, I'm going to have an ice cream and I'm going to remember that this is a place of joy and not a place of trauma for me or honoring the trauma. But I think that we can create these things for ourselves.
0: That tension between memory and immediacy is one that I tracked throughout the chapter that that showed up everywhere. You know, we we talked about Harry's first visit to Gringotts, right? He has these memories of of seeing his own vault, that feeling of wealth that he didn't know he had, that sense of potential and opportunity and belonging that he feels in this wizarding world, right? Everything that he's not had in his life with the Dursleys. But then also all over this chapter, there are these signs of immediacy, like Griphook says to Harry, act now, act now. That's when he casts the Imperius Curse elsewhere we hear that within seconds they were standing in the vast marble hall of the bank so there's this contrast continually for harry of like living nearly in two times at once right in the time of his memory and in the time of this action even the experience of planning the action compared to when they went to the ministry back in book 5 where he was excited and hopeful and and kind of felt like he was going to succeed now he's just filled with anxiety and terror because he knows all the things that can go wrong as indeed they do so I wonder, have you ever felt like you're living in two times at the same time?
1: Yeah, it. I feel like when someone is living in two times at the same time, they can be kind of insufferable to be around, right? <laughs> it, like when I took Peter to my high school to like see where I went to middle school and high school, or right, like you're there with them and you're so excited and you're like, this is where I used to put my backpack down every day. And it's like... No one cares. Nobody cares. And you're like, but I am in a time traveling experience right now. And it's super cool for me. Yeah. The thing that's uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about this chapter is that Harry seems to almost believe that certain times of day are for certain kinds of thoughts, right? Ooh. The night before he's, it is like for anxious thoughts. And then in the morning, right before he's supposed to wake up, he's in a reflective mood and then it's time to get up and do the thing. And he's relieved that it's time to no longer have the anxious thoughts, but the sun is up. So he's allowed to be a person of action again. I do think that, that is also true for me. You know, someone once told me, don't trust thoughts that you have in the dark. And I think that that's true for me, right? Like I have a lot of spiraling, unhealthy thoughts at night that come morning, right? Like joy comes in the morning. And I think that we we see that with Harry as well. It's not just the two timelines of previous visits to Diagon Alley, but it's the multiple timelines of just like the rhythms of the day.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, we're told that when he arrives in Diagon Alley, it was quiet, barely time for the shops to open. So it's right at that kind of, it's another threshold moment, the time of not quite, even when they, even when they arrive in the magical world. I really like what you said about when you're planning something, because I feel like that's another example of living in two timelines. I'm someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the future and planning for the future and strategizing and like imagining and and some of that is a great gift, right? Like you need to have that in order to imagine something better and different and more beautiful for the world, but it can also be a trap. And I think the times when I'm unhappiest is when I focused so much in the time of planning that I'm, it's such a cliche, but then I'm not really present to the time that I'm actually in. And certainly, as you said, for the people around you, right, it's not just when you're visiting your old high school. What if every time you have dinner with me, I'm like, let's talk about the future. And you're just like, I just cooked a beautiful meal for you. Please, let's enjoy this. Not that that's in any way reflective of my life. Um, <laughs> but I, But I think that's the danger of those two timelines. Just as it is of like sticking to the past, right? Some people might really be pulled to memory of the past and how it used to be. And I think nostalgia can can have that kind of, you know, sometimes we imagine it as this sweet, happy memory, but it can turn sour and pull people into a world that no longer is.
1: Or that never was.
0: Or that never was, exactly, at the expense of of the world that they're actually in. And so I guess the thing that I want to think about with this dual timeline question is like, how do I live enough you know, of the future that I can shape it, hopefully in some positive way, but not get sucked so far out of the actual time that I'm in to lose sight of what's really important right now.
1: So we see a little bit of that metaphor in this chapter, I think. I am very interested in the way that Bellatrix sort of haunts the beginning of this chapter. So Hermione hates using her uh, Bellatrix's wand, right? Yeah. And Harry at first was like, I know, using other people's wands sucks, doesn't it? And then (laughs) realizes that that's actually about trauma for Hermione and not about like it not being a great wand, right? Like it is the wand that was that tortured Hermione. It is the wand that killed Sirius. It is right. Right. It's not just like, oh, this wand doesn't work as well. It is a, a weapon of the worst person in Hermione's life. And then Hermione obviously is embodying Bellatrix and they are going to Bellatrix's vault. And then we see the echo, right? Like Harry hears Bellatrix in his head when he Imperios. He's like, oh, I don't think I did it strongly enough. And then remembers the advice of Bellatrix, which is you have to mean it, right? Like almost like a Dumbledore mentor voice. And then they go through the water And it is like this baptism Mm. moment where Hermione gets washed of Bellatrix. And I feel like Bellatrix then sort of gets weaponized against them. She goes from being this accompanying spirit, this like advice giving spirit, this like literal ticket in to being nothing but violence and suffocation and burning And I I think that that is true of trauma, that there are Mm -hmm. times with trauma that you can allow it to make you a more compassionate person, a more empathetic person. And there are other times that it can just feel like a weapon or like, you know, something that you have to carry. And I think Hermione's relationship to Bellatrix in this chapter, to me, really symbolizes both. That this trauma allows her to do all these things. It means that she has a hair, one of Bellatrix's hairs on her sweater. It means that she can break into Gringotts. It means that she's been given all this access to see the world in a totally different way. But it's also this really heavy cross to bear.
0: Can you talk to us about how you think about trauma and time? Because that's something we thought a lot about through the arc of these seven books, right? Harry's very first experiences living with the Dursleys are traumatic. And there's a tension, I feel, about a narrative of healing and integration and health, which we want desperately for these characters, and the lingering scars or wounds even that ca- that cannot heal. And I think sometimes we talk about time. I mean, I'm going to use another musical reference here, but Bernadette Peters' great song, Time Heals Everything, But Loving You, right? Like there's some things that cannot be healed by time. Like, how, how do you think that shows up in these books?
1: I think grief is really helpful for me to think about time, right? My sort of understanding of grief is that you don't miss someone less over time. You get used to living without them Mm. and you have spent more days living without them. And so you know what that looks like more and more. Mm. And so the longer you go, without someone, maybe the longer you go without thinking about them, because not every fork reminds you of that person. You know, not every time you go out to get the mail, are you getting a piece of mail with their name? But that doesn't mean that when you think of them, you miss them less. That doesn't make the impact that they've had on you less. It's not that time lessens the grief. It just changes your relationship with the grief. Mm. And I think that that is true for trauma as well, right? I don't think that time heals all wounds. I think that some wounds fester. And I think that it really depends on whether you are constantly being asked to re-traumatize yourself or a system is constantly re-traumatizing you, or if you are able to go somewhere safe and retreat. I think that You know, Harry is able to really extricate himself from the Dursleys. He's found this other family that he can pretty well integrate with, with the Weasleys that accepts him entirely. So obviously we don't know, you know, he's survived a lot of trauma, but I would like to think that time for Harry is able to heal a lot of this because he has somewhere so safe and so loving to go. But I, yeah, I don't think it's inevitable. And I think a lot of it has to do with luck and privilege and access.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the the thing that struck me in this chapter is the way in which social dynamics have completely changed. As the trio are walking towards Gringotts, we see these characters who are referred to as the wandless. And Travers asks a fake Hermione, Bellatrix, What did it want, right? Like that level of dehumanization has happened so quickly in this society. And and we should say it already existed obviously across species, but it's now happening within a wizard class as it were. I think the impact of that does not go away. If you have had an experience of that, desperation and dehumanization, even if everything returns to some semblance of normality, I'm really suspicious of narratives of too easy completion and closure and and healing. Like, I don't think we'll know when these wounds show up until they do. And that really struck me, that little interaction. Like, there are five nameless characters in this chapter just on the street where we don't know what their lives are going to be like in 30 years time.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest questions to me with the coronavirus. You know, obviously the question is, how do we get through? When does it end? But it's also, what are the impacts going to be in 30 years? From the kids who aren't going to get to grow up with certain people around them to that same child, what was the impact of it? like Not being socialized in a school setting, in a traditional school setting. Like We have no idea what the long-term effects of these things are. And yeah, I think the same is true in the wizarding world. We have no idea what the impact of this is going to be on the trio. On And they just keep accumulating trauma, these three kids, right? Like Hermione has not healed in any way, physically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, from the last horrible thing that has happened to her. And here she is being like drowned in gold while in the clothes and DNA Of the woman who tortured her. And I like don't understand why Ron didn't become Bellatrix. Maybe Hermione said, no, I want to do it. That she would find it easier to pretend to be Bellatrix than to look at Bellatrix. But it is so horrible to me that Hermione has to pretend to be the person who tortured her.
0: God, I hadn't even thought about that. That's so
1: intense. I mean, it's just horrible. It's just absolutely awful. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, so should we go into the action scene and go to one of your favorite moments, which is when the word shows up in the text?
0: Yes, let's do it.
1: Okay, so they are in the vault. They're looking for Hufflepuff's cup. He described it to Ron and Hermione, and then Harry, he barely had time to glance around. However, before there was a muffled clunk from behind them, the door reappeared, sealing them inside the vault, and they were plunged into total darkness.
0: Dum dum dum. <laughs> I
1: know. And I mean, that feeling of being trapped. And what's amazing to me about how Harry handles this is again and again, they're like, what are we going to do to get out? And he's like, let's worry about that when it's time to get out, right? Like he does not take any of the external impositions of his time as a threat on his personal understanding of time. He's like, okay, we keep working. The door is shut. We'll figure that out. We keep going on the task in front of us. And Hermione at one point is like, we should turn back. And he's like, nope, we're in too deep. And that's always a really hard thing. Like I, as we've talked about before, I believe in quitting. I believe very much in the sunk cost fallacy. Like just because you put too much into something does not mean that it isn't time to quit. Like sometimes you put a lot into something and it's just all a waste and you're just going to waste more by putting more in. But he is just not letting anyone's outside understanding of time impact his focus which I think is entirely how he's able to keep this going right it's like he has tuned out the rest of the world's understanding of time
0: yeah and or he's really tuned in to his own experience of it because I feel like at this point Harry's had so many close escapes I mean maybe I'm reading it too narratively rather than sacredly, but like I feel like he has a good feeling about this in the way that he's like, listen, it worked in year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, most of year seven, like we figured out the sword, some silver dough will appear, like something's going to happen and you know what? It does. And it's not that he's a passive passenger in that experience, right? He breaks the chain of the dragon. Hermione helps open the building by blowing it up so that they can escape, right? They are participants in it, but there is something about trusting I don't want to pull too hard to make it about time, but there's a, there's a sense of trusting your own experience that you're like, I I think I'm going to go with it. And he seems to be doing that
1: in order to make it about time, right? He's trusting his future self. He's like, future me, will figure that out. Current me can't worry about that because current me has to worry about this.
0: I love that.
1: Future me has got it.
0: I love this so much because you've often said to me, trust your former self's decision right like you made that choice in a moment where you really had full you know control of your faculties and you had good amount of time to think about it and talk to people so i'm used to thinking about like former me and my decisions but i love that idea of being able to trust future me too like i don't have to know everything right now in order to take the next step and trust that like future me will have new new ideas or opinions or insights that future me can bring to the table. So basically you're telling me I'm my own trio. There's me, there's past me and future me. And we're out to kill Voldemort.
1: <laughs> and always count on the fact that future you is Hermione. So she can handle a lot. Like, don't worry about it. Hermione's got it.
0: That's a real winning strategy. <laughs> okay, so can I go to my favorite theory in the whole escape situation?
1: Oh my God, yes. Yes.
0: Talking about memory, there's massive connections to book four and the tri Tournament. Because as the trio are like making their way out, and you know, Grip Hook and Harry have had their moment of like both realizing that the other one was gonna screw them over. First, we have the the water challenge, right? Their disguises are rent useless. um, So that reminds us of the water challenge. Then there's the the dragon challenge. And then there's the maze that they have to get out of, the final challenge in the Triwizard Tournament. And of course, it's all for a cup, a magical cup. And so like, is there something interesting happening here? Yes. Do I know why? No. Can you help me figure that out? Yes, please. (laughs) I can give my like half-hearted theory, which is that we've had so many memories in this chapter about book one, right? Harry's entrance into the wizarding world. This is a memory back to the middle of the series, book four. And it's the moment when Harry faces Voldemort face to face in a fully embodied form. So there's, there are these big markers in the story, right? The end of book four is this transition from like a childhood into, you know, a real battle. And so it feels like there's a beginning and a middle and an end that we're, that we're hitting here.
1: I absolutely think that you are onto something. The question is whether or not I can make any better meaning of it than you can. And I like my my initial gut is no, but I'm going to trust 30 seconds from now, Vanessa. (laughs) The only like productive new thought that is occurring to me is that maybe the reason Dumbledore allowed Harry to get wrapped up in the Four Wizard Tournament is because he knew that he would fight similar fights later in his life. Oh. Like, I wonder if Dumbledore was like, one day he's gonna need to break into Gringotts and let's design this tournament to be like that. But you know, it's always bothered me in book four that Dumbledore isn't like, who cares what the cup says? I'm the headmaster, he's a child. No, like this is so (laughs) dumb, no. And, like, maybe Dumbledore was like, I'm going to let him practice under, like, a supervised, safe space because he might have to do this exact kind of thing later. And he did not guess that Moody was actually Barty Crouch Jr. And so it it obviously got way out of hand. I don't think Dumbledore was like, and he should learn how to grieve a fellow student. Like, I don't. (laughs) Right. Like, it got severely out of hand. But I think that it's possible that Dumbledore let Harry do that tournament. In order to prepare him for exactly this kind of thing,
0: I love that your time will come. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me is the way in which we have this really interesting inversion of those two experiences. Right. The the Triwizard Tournament. Each challenge is very controlled and and safe, even though it is experienced as stressful by Harry. The fundamentals are no one's going to drown in the lake. But then it ends in this thing that's completely twisted, right? It, Voldemort is there. The, it's out of control. And this whole adventure in Gringotts is kind of the other way around, right? Like there are all of these life or death situations, the, the exploding treasure, the goblins, all, all everything that's happening is not in Harry's control. But as soon as he's on the back of the dragon they have the upper hand. And there's this sense of escape and ease and freedom, which also harkens back to the escape on the hippogriff or or, or the freedom of being on a thestral. Of of course, most originally the freedom of being on a broom, the sense that once Harry's in the air, we're actually going back to the beginning (laughs) of book one, right? That sense of ease and freedom and control. That ultimately, I guess, ties these three moments of memory together, book one, book four, and book seven. And we're having this sense of completion in time.
1: I mean, I also think that it's everything that everybody ever taught him, right? Because Hagrid taught him that dragons aren't the enemy. And so I think that Harry has a totally different relationship to this dragon as soon as he lays eyes on it. Right. He's like Norberta. Right. Like he just like (laughs) has this different relationship and he doesn't like that. You know, the dragon has scars on its face. And because of his abuse, he's like any abuse is wrong. Right. Like I think that you see Harry acting in the way that every piece of wisdom and love Mm. and everything that has been poured into this child is coming out in this moment of just incredible bravery and brilliance. I love that. So, Casper, we are going to try to go back and do Florilegia in the way that Stephanie Paulsell taught us to. We've sort of created our own way of doing Florilegia that I love, but we're going to return to the original way that Stephanie taught us, which is that each of us are just going to say our sparklets before we talk about the intention and the context, et cetera. So my sparklet is he did not relinquish it. What is your sparklet?
0: The sound of the clankers.
1: So he did not relinquish it. The sound of the clankers. What is a clanker? Is this a British thing?
0: I think it's a made up thing. I mean, obviously we know in the context of the text what it's doing, but it I don't think it has any meaning outside of that.
1: Okay. So it obviously sounds like he's not relinquishing the sound of the clankers. And so... You know, we've been thinking about time and trauma and past experiences coming back to us. It's like that there's certain sounds that we just like can't relinquish that play in our head over and over again. I'm thinking of like destructive thoughts that we just like have on loop in our head. I really am embarrassed to say this, but like it's one of the ways that Finding Nemo has like gotten into my head, right? Of Like, just keep swimming. I feel like sometimes if I'm in a real depression or if we're feeling really unmotivated, I will sort of like clankers just sort of recite to myself, just keep going. There's something beautiful about not relinquishing those sort of positive thoughts, but they can also just be so damning.
0: I love that you went to Finding Nemo because I'm going to First World War Poetry We just observed Armistice Day, the 11th of November, where, you know, in England, that's a a big moment of kind of national mourning, especially for the First and Second World War. And often poems by people like Wilfred Owen are read aloud, at least certainly in my early school years. That was a big part of what that day was about. And so I'm thinking of his poem Dulce et Decorum Est." where the second stanza goes, gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. And I feel like he did not relinquish it. The sound of the clankers could fit like really easily within some of that war poetry. You know, we talked about memory kind of invading experience and just thinking about how people who have survived war are haunted not only by the memories that they see, but the question of why did I survive when people I loved and served with died? And just the sound of the clankers, like there's something martial about it. There's something destructive. And and of course, we know in the text, the context of a kind of torturous association and just that sense of not being able to release that or that it has a hold on you and the way maybe in which those experiences change things that used to seem innocent You know, in that poem by Wilfred Owen, he's talking about that idea of how sweet it is to die for your country and how that is completely inverted for him by his experience of war. So I'm thinking about how something that seems innocent or good can become twisted and evil through an experience like war.
1: Right. Just like the clankers have become for the dragon. And I I think that, yeah, that's something that time and memory does. I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but this like really dumb pen holder became completely symbolic to me of the Northridge earthquake, because Mm. I remember it sort of like peacefully sitting on the counter the Friday before the earthquake. And then the earthquake happened on a Sunday morning. And then Sunday afternoon, it was just, it was on the other side of the room. And, you know, eventually it got put back up on the counter. And I was like, but it'll never be on the counter in the same way again, right? Like this really silly item became... Symbolic of so much else in my head. Hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: So, Casper, where is your sentence from and why did you pick it?
0: I took this phrase from, uh, obviously, they're near the dragon. The goblins are using the clankers as a way to kind of cower the dragon because the dragon is expecting pain And the text tells us, Harry could see it trembling as they drew nearer. He saw the scars made by vicious slashes across the face and guessed that it had been taught to fear hot swords when it heard the sound of the clankers. So it's so closely wrapped up in violence, in even the hotness of the swords speaks to some of the hotness, I think, of the metal that we're going to see in just a few paragraphs time. So yeah, I I, I guess pain is the main thing that it's associated with. And the reason I chose it is that the whole thing feels kind of futile. It's more about the law and the kind of rumor of like, oh, there's a dragon at the bottom of Gringotts and you'd be a fool to rob it, right? Like Hagrid says in book one, like the dragon is actually not that effective as a protection mechanism. And it just feels like there's a creature being tortured so that people can tell a story. And that's ugly.
1: Well, I had not thought of that, but that it's heartbreaking.
0: How about you? Why did you choose he did not relinquish it?
1: It is when Harry like dives and catches the tiny golden cup and it says although he could feel it scalding his flesh, he did not relinquish it. And that I like really believe in mind over matter in those moments that like you can say this is more important to me than physical pain and get your body to do incredible things and yet as someone who really does not like physical pain, I feel like I'd be like, oh, it was hot and just like accidentally drop it. So I think I, it just speaks to the fact that like Harry is an absolute soldier, right? Like he has been training for this his whole time at Hogwarts and maybe even his whole life that he knows that there's just pain that you ignore your body and are like, who cares? This is bigger. And yeah, that just speaks to like such discipline and presence of mind and maturity, right? Unfortunately, like a real harmful form of maturity. But I would like to think that I would do that if the stakes were this high, if a child was in danger or the fate of the world in this case was, you know, at stake, that I would be like, okay, I've dislocated my shoulder. It doesn't matter. Like, just keep holding on. Mm. And so, yeah, it just speaks to me of incredible fortitude and training in Harry. It's I just admire it a great deal.
0: Yeah. And that sense of self-sacrifice is in here so strong again, you know, as it will be in just a few chapters.
1: Yeah, that's the other thing. Speaking of looking forward and looking back, like looking back, he's been training for this his whole life, but also looking forward, this is a moment of continuing training for the moment where he walks into the forest. He's like learning again and again to prioritize sacrificing his body for the greater good which is I mm. I mean it's just a horrible thing for a child to have to think about for anybody to have to think about mm. so let's now put them together in the other order which is the sound of the clinkers he did not relinquish it I mean what it makes me think of you know with your reading of sort of a World War one poem with the clinkers right it's somebody who is unwilling to relinquish the lack of comfort in telling a difficult story. You know, I got schooled in the best way, right? I was excited to celebrate the election of Biden and somebody was like, yes, but like white people have to be really careful about celebrating and Mm. letting that become complacency. Take your day to celebrate, but this is not over. This is not fixed. Racism Mm. was not invented with Trump and it's not going away with Trump. Those sort of clankers, right? Like those people who remind us, of darkness, even in times of celebration, I think can often be scapegoated when really they are the brave spokespeople who are constantly reminding us, like, these fights are not over. These fights are not over. Mm. And so, I don't know. It calls me to want to be one of the clankers, right? Like, and not relinquish, not ever lose sight of what's important, even in moments of celebration. Mm. What about you?
0: The sound of the clankers, he did not relinquish it. You know, we have both picked passages here about pain, which is interesting to me. And I don't quite know where I'm going with this, but I'm interested in the idea that sometimes we're holding on to something, even though we no longer have to. <laughs> I'm thinking about the relinquishing here as an opportunity that we just might not be able to see. Are there places where I'm still heading towards pain over and over and again, even though I don't need to anymore. You know, maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in a habit that's no longer serving me. I I don't know. I need to think more about that. But there's something about the clankers themselves in the passage are not inflicting pain. They are a promise of pain. And what if that pain just stopped or had already some time ago, but it was still reminding me every time of something that had happened in the past. So I'm not, I'm not quite, I'm a little fuzzy with it. I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but there's something in that, I guess that's an invitation to me to be like, just just look and where are stories that I'm telling myself no longer true?
1: Yeah. Emily Nagowski in her book, Come As You Are, has this great, like, I think it's one of the opening paragraphs where she's like, your body is beautiful the way that it is. And I remember reading it and being like, yeah, that's true if I lost 20 pounds. And she went, some of you probably thought, that will be true if you lost 20 pounds. But to you, I say, no, no, it is beautiful right now. And I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, that is true for most other people. And then she was like, and some of you probably think that's true about other people. And I was like, right. And it was just someone being like, relinquish this story that you are telling yourself that you are only beautiful contingent on things about your body being different. And so, yeah, I think we have like, Dumb destructive clankers like that. These just like negative thoughts that we can relinquish.
0: Wow, that's so wise.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimald Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.
1: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: It's time for this week's voicemail, and we're going to hear from Jackson. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. This is Jackson. I really enjoyed the last chapter on mystery, but one thing I felt deserved to mention happened during the interview with Griphook. He's complaining of the goblins' treatment at the hands of wizards, how they won't share their wand lore, how they've even been at war with goblins. And he's wondering why he should help wizards after all that. Hermione jumps in with, well, look at me, I'm a mudblood, I'm wanted, I've been mistreated. But Hermione is an excellent wizard. She has extreme wand craft. In a way, she kind of all lives matters
1: grip hook, and I don't think it's cool. What did you think of that? Jackson, thank you so much for this voicemail. The metaphor that I more see this as is maybe like a Jew and a homosexual or a Jew and a communist or something talking during World War II of like, they're coming for me. And it's like, well, they're coming for me, too. Yeah. Of course, I think that the history of the oppression of queer folk and the history of the oppression of Jews is totally different, but I can imagine a certain context saying you and I are being hunted in the exact same way here in this exact historical moment of like 1939 Berlin.
0: Yeah, there's actually something really interesting in this passage because Hermione is kind of building an intersectional argument by illustrating the way in which Their struggles are interconnected. But I think maybe the misstep that she makes is not to take seriously Griphook's insistence about the changing nature of dominance between wizards and goblins and wizards and other species in a way that Hermione can't quite see because she is still a member of a kind of wizarding people. And so even when we can see the ways in which our struggles are interrelated and and oppressions can hit multiple groups... We shouldn't assume we can see the whole picture just from our own location. And so I I love that you're pointing us to that, Jackson. That's really helpful.
1: Yeah. It's like white feminism. It's like this wanting to say to women of color, the problem isn't race, it's patriarchy. And it's like, yes, but patriarchy impacts you, white lady, different than it impacts me, you know, woman of color. And same with what Griphuck is saying to Hermione, like, yes, Mudblood, you are also at risk, but it impacts me differently than it does impact you. And those moments of like similarity and of difference are so important.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. Vanessa, we're going to bless two people from this chapter. And as ever, I feel like as these books progress, there's just more and more blessings that I want to give. But who do you want to bless this time around?
1: bless Hermione I don't know she goes through so much in this chapter she has to pretend to be mean to vulnerable people which I feel like just is the least Hermione thing and then at the end she like still has the wherewithal to like help them break out of Gringotts Harry has this brilliant idea right of freeing the dragon and escaping on the literal tail (laughs) of this creature that he's freed. But he's then just sort of relinquished a minute too early. He's like, okay, I figured it out. We're safe. The dragon will get us out of here. And it's it's not true, right? Like The dragon and all of his strength can't break through walls without harming itself. And Hermione keeps that brilliant presence of mind. So I guess I want to bless her for, in this case, breaking down a physical wall. There's no wall that Hermione can't. Breakdown. Mm. What about you, Casper? Who do you want to bless?
0: I want to bless Harry. We see in this chapter that the stone that he engraved for Dobby is a white stone. And I suddenly saw the connection between the grave that he had seen for Dumbledore and the one that he has made for Dobby. And I think in this moment, when we're grieving so much, most importantly, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who have died of COVID in my opinion, unnecessarily because of the failure of our governments. I think a lot of us are having to lean into grief. And I, I guess what I want to bless Harry for is trying to find examples of how to grieve and integrating that into his own life and finding places and and tools and processes that would help him honor the person that he loves who has died. And so, I, yeah, I want to bless Harry for that. I, I feel like he's doing the best he can in the midst of so much difficulty.
1: Yeah, I was also really touched by that goodbye moment. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Join our local groups and come and join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can, as always, leave us a review on iTunes. We prefer when they are five stars. And you can send us a voicemail or sign up for Casper's pilgrimage. It's January 7th through 10th, and they will be reading book one and spending time thinking and writing and reflecting and walking with Casper. They'll probably be singing.
0: Absolutely, there will be. And also, I've already arranged for a special guest of a numb. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> you can find out more and sign up at harrypottersacredtext.com. Next week, we'll read Chapter 27, The Final Hiding Place, through the theme of loneliness. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by ACAST. Thanks to Jackson for this week's voicemail, to Julie Arge, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Pulsell, And you, Vanessa. Thanks.
1: You're welcome. Recording,
0: Recording episode. episode. Chapter 26. The Lost Diadem.
1: That's not the chap. Did you read that chapter? That's the wrong chapter.
0: I'm Margaret Thatcher.